This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Designed specifically for venture-backed startups, Brex is the perfect corporate card for fast-growing companies. Head to brex.com and sign up with the promo TFR to get waived card fees for life. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back to TFR. Today, one of the biggest names in tech between the coasts joins us. Scott Dorsey, the leader of Exact Target prior to its $2.7 billion exit to Salesforce, is here to discuss his efforts at venture firm High Alpha. The long-awaited topic of the venture studio is in focus today, as Scott is the perfect guest to unpack the studio model. Studios, of course, are venture firms that often create, develop, and or grow ideas in-house versus the standard model of investing in external teams. The studio model, started in 1996 by Idealab, has grown significantly in popularity, with now over 100 firms focused on the fund plus build model. Scott is here to discuss the benefits of studios and how they execute at high alpha. Here's the interview with the incomparable Scott Dorsey. Scott Dorsey joins us today from Indianapolis. Scott is the managing partner at High Alpha, a Midwest-based venture studio with investments in Malomo, Woven, and Lessonly, among others. High Alpha is a traditional venture fund as well as a venture studio, a model that unites company building with venture capital. Previous to High Alpha, Scott was the co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Exact Target for 13 years, which was acquired in 2013 by Salesforce. For $2.7 billion. Scott, welcome to the program. Thanks, Nick. Happy to be, happy to be on the program. Yeah, so you and I have talked a couple times, but uh, for the listener's benefit, can you give us your backstory and sort of your path to tech? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I'd be happy to. So, grew up in the Chicago area, as you know, uh, hail from, uh, from Naperville, and then went down more of a business path and ultimately found my way to Kellogg, the business school at Northwestern yep. in kind of the late 90s. And that was really my my kind of entry point to technology. So I was at Kellogg from 96 to 99, studied entrepreneurship, internet business models. I'm really more business-minded than, than tech-minded and kind of fell in love with entrepreneurship and the, you know, the advent of the internet and, and software as a service models. So I was fortunate in that 96 to 99 timeframe to get a chance to go out to Silicon Valley uh, on a number of occasions and and study what what were the ingredients that led to a successful tech ecosystem. And it really, it was an exciting time in Chicago when when the internet and the, the tech ecosystem was building. And we, we actually, our capstone course was to go out to Silicon Valley and, and study the innovation economy and come back to Chicago and make recommendations on what what those ingredients needed to be to to put Chicago on the map from a technology oh, perspective, and it, you know, it's 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 everything we know today. You know, it's a mix of uh, capital and and entrepreneurs and and mentors, and it's fun for me. You know, nearly twenty years later, that I'm I'm still in tech ecosystem kind of building mode. But but Kellogg really was my my springboard to give me the the confidence and the and the excitement to get Exact Target started. So. Ended up taking that big jump in early 2001 with two talented co-founders, and that's what kind of led to moving my family to Indianapolis. My wife was from Indy, so that was that was a logical connection point. And then one of my co-founders, Chris, was already here in Indianapolis, so that that was a springboard for me to get Exact Target off the ground and and take that that big leap that entrepreneurs take. And we we did so at a pretty challenging time in in late 2000, early 2001. Yeah, yeah, I bet. You know, it's great to have a Naperville guy here on the show. The uh, <laughs> <laughs> the podcast studio is here in Naperville, and I think you might be the first. Rick Klaus. I, I love it. I love yeah. it. I, you know, Naperville is making big news right now with uh, with James on Jeopardy. I don't know if you saw that James is from Naperville, and That's he's right. he's making this huge run. So I feel you know I feel like there's there's a lot of intellectual horsepower coming out of Naperville. Yeah, for sure. By the way, Northwestern has their Venture Cat competition tonight. 
their accelerator oh, program. Oh my gosh, outstanding. Yeah. yeah. So uh, we've got a whole crew of new stack folks going to that. So I'll let you know if we see anything interesting. Please do. Please do. Love it. So tell us the story behind Exact Target. You know, what led up to sort of the founding of that? We could spend the whole podcast talking about it, but if you had to kind of give us an overview of the path, you know, to to the eventual exit, that would be great. No, I'd be I'd be happy to. So Chris Baggett is my brother-in-law. So we've got kind of a fun family meets business startup story here. But Chris really had the inspiration for Exact Target. He came from, he also spent time in Chicago, but came from a, a database marketing background with R. Donnelly and kind of grew up in the industry helping marketers really understand that the more you know about your customer, the better you can serve them and the better you can communicate with them. And he was uh, bright and savvy enough to, to see that the internet was going to enable and amplify that in, in ways that, that had not been imagined previously. So it was like this kind of perfect storm of uh, of me having the Kellogg experience and really wanting to run my own company and, and wanting to be an entrepreneur. And, you know, three years of just studying the mechanics of what, what a winning business model might look like in the internet age. And then Chris coming from the the database marketing background and then just being this extraordinary evangelist. And and Chris, after running with Exact Target for four or five years, founded a company, Compendium. He was a kind of a first mover in the corporate blogging space and they got acquired by Oracle. And now he's applying his creativity and innovation to ag tech and and farming and and food tech and food delivery. So he's He's just your consummate serial entrepreneur, fearless entrepreneur, matched with me being more of the kind of practical company builder and and more the general manager mindset. And then we brought a third co-founder, a guy named Peter McCormick, who I'd worked with previously. And Peter's incredibly driven and and bright and energetic. And and the three of us made a really good founding team. But but we were definitely an against-all-odds story. We were first-time entrepreneurs None of us had a technical background starting an internet company after the bubble had burst and, you know, good luck doing it from, from Indianapolis. So, I mean, there were many, many reasons why this wasn't going to work, but, but we also had some good things going for us. We were all kind of sales and marketing minded. We had high empathy for the problem we were solving out of necessity because we were thinly capitalized. You know, we built an MVP before it was hip to even call it an MVP. It basically was a product that barely worked, but kind of worked enough that we could <laughs> we could make some early sales and drive and drive revenue. And we we ended up solving a problem that marketers cared about, which was how do I connect with my customers in a more meaningful way using digital technology like email? How do I start leveraging the movement of internet marketing? And I look back in hindsight, and now that we're in the company building mode through the studio you know, sometimes you don't realize kind of how good you had you had it, but we definitely caught the wave of internet marketing. We caught the wave of software as a service, and we worked really, really hard. And we we started by selling to small businesses, and then over time, when we built more capabilities, we moved up to the mid market, and then ultimately up to the enterprise. And and then we took email and we went into other modalities of internet marketing. We started in the U.S. and then we expanded geographically and. It was just wonderful. You know, it's just a kind of a dream story, but, you know, ride for us. Plenty of challenges and plenty of things that broke and, and didn't work along the way that we had to overcome. But but ultimately, we built we built a leading marketing, digital marketing software company, you know, on the planet and did so by focusing on people and building an amazing culture and leveraging the, the uniqueness of Indianapolis and, and serving our customers well. We ended up going public in March of 2012, and that was an incredible experience for first-time CEO to go through the IPO process. And then we were public for five quarters, and we're doing great. Actually, we we were kind of you know beating guidance every quarter on top line and bottom line. We were north of a billion-dollar market cap. We were growing still north of 40% year over year, and then uh, Salesforce kind of came knocking. And one thing led to another, and we, we felt that we had a brighter future uh, as a part of Salesforce versus competing with them. And and subsequently, they've continued to invest in the community and, and grow the business really, really rapidly. Exact Target represents well north of a billion dollars in recurring revenue within Salesforce. And it was just a, wow. just a win-win for everybody. Actually, it was really fun. Nick, uh, uh, Mark Benioff was in town last week, and at kind of an all-hands town hall meeting – 
he said not only has Exact Target been the most successful acquisition Salesforce has ever made, but he said it's probably the most successful acquisition in enterprise software history. Wow. Which uh, which wow, that's a big statement coming from him. So yeah. it it feels good, you know, now five or six years later to see the success that Exact Target's had within Salesforce and the ongoing impact in Indianapolis and so many colleagues that are still at Salesforce growing the company. It's it's uh, it's tough not to feel pretty wonderful about it. I imagine there were pressures to sell the business along the way, right? How did you decide to kind of hang on and keep growing and keep building and ultimately go public, you know, instead of uh, taking sort of a, an earlier exit? Yeah, it's a great question. I would, and I would, say, I would say two factors. One, we are very driven by let's make this the biggest success we can, that you know, we felt like this was working and we had a chance to build a, a breakout company that you know would have lasting impact. So part of it was just, I think, internal drive to say, we're in a position, a fortunate position to be the market leader in a high growth space. Let's Let's leave it all in the field. Like let's take it as far as we can. So that was that was a big part of our mindset. And I'd say part of the fuel for that was just the love and support we were getting from the city of Indianapolis and the state of Indiana, knowing that we had an opportunity to build a breakout company that could really, really define the tech ecosystem and, and make a lasting impact. So that strategically, I'd say that was a, a big motivation for us. Secondly, this is very tactical, but we were fortunate to raise secondary rounds of capital along the way where founders, investors, and even employees had an opportunity to take a few chips off the table along the way. And that's advice I commonly provide to entrepreneurs that have their entire net worth locked up in one company Mm -hmm. and and might be tempted, frankly, to sell too soon is look for opportunities for secondary capital where those that want to take a few chips off the table and diversify and lock down some financial security can do it. And then it just gives you the hunger and the ambition to keep growing the company and not play defense, but continue to think offensively and aggressively about growing the company. So so tactically, we were fortunate to have that opportunity. And I, I kind of credit that with us not selling too soon and making sure we had a, a longer term horizon in mind. Got it. Got it. I think that's really good advice for founders and, and employees alike. But yeah, it's been it's been some time since I talked to your your partner at Exact Target, Chris. But I remember chatting through his food tech opportunity. One of the more entertaining names I've heard in in the startup space, but uh, Cluster Truck, I think, is what he was he was calling it. How how are things with Chris going in, yeah, in his new ventures? Remarkably well, <laughs> remarkably well. And yeah, the naming is funny too. When we when we started Exact Target, Chris actually had the name, the domain, you know, clarity on the trademark. And me being kind of the freshly minted MBA, I was confident I could come up with a, a better name. And I was I was actually concerned that Exact Target would feel good to the marketer, but not great to the subscriber. And we were, you know, clear that we were going to take a path around permission-based email marketing and that virality, like a little powered by Exact Target logo, was going to be an important element of of all kind of inbound email. And Chris was like, you know, okay, knock your socks off if you can come up with a better better name or brand than Exact Target will consider it. And and I really couldn't. You know, Exact Target turned out to be an excellent brand for us over the course of time. And then and then Chris started Compendium and that was yeah. a very clever name that fit the business. And then he kind of came to me with with Cluster Truck and I'm and Cluster Truck actually means a collection of food trucks. So his early concept was to to be a digital yeah. food truck, you know, to be a, right. a set of, of digital food trucks. So that the name had had meaning but it's edgy. You know, you get one syllable wrong, it's a real problem. So the more I cautioned Chris about the name Cluster Truck, the more he fell in love with it. And, uh, and of course, he's been right. Like he's built like this kind of irreverent brand, this this food movement around, you know, high quality food delivered within minutes and how disruptive it is to the DoorDashes and Grubhubs that are kind of a delivery model slapped on a brick and mortar restaurant that's not really engineered for delivery. So anyway, long story short, Cluster Truck's doing remarkably well. They're running in Indianapolis, Columbus, Denver, and Kansas City. Those are the four markets, and they've got their eye on on expanding beyond those four kitchens. But this this whole idea of an urban kitchen or a ghost kitchen with technology-enabled delivery mm-hmm. and, and kind of vertical integration, it's it's Chris once again was kind of head of the curve. It's it's a pretty hot market. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I remember chatting with him about a variety of the reasons that 
a company like Sprig failed, I think Cluster Truck is, is positioned super well. So anyway, that's probably a topic for another day. And that's a fun one. Today, you know, we're going to go deep on the Venture Studio model. Yeah, let's do it. Let's um, do I'm, it. I'm glad we have you here because, uh, you know, for I think a couple of years now, we've been looking for the right person to kind of talk about this foundry model or the studio model, uh, depending on what you call it. But before we kind of double click on that, can you can you talk about why you launched High Alpha? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I, you know, I stayed at Salesforce for a year and, and loved it. And it was really important to me that I did everything in my power to make sure that the integration was seamless for our employees and our customers. And then also Salesforce made an enormous bet on us and, and I wanted to do everything in my power to make sure that the integration was successful and that exact target and the marketing cloud were set up for future success. And, and boy, that's, that's all happened in spades. And also I had a chance to work directly for, for Mark Benioff for a year and that was, that was like my PhD in SaaS, you know, <laughs> that was an incredible, <laughs> incredible learning opportunity. So, so, you know, after, after doing so and, and really reaching a point where it started to make more sense for Exact Target to really evolve into Salesforce and and the Salesforce brand and you know really kind of getting vertically integrated, tightly integrated into Salesforce. It became less and less a fit for me. And after 13 years of you know every waking minute being focused on digital marketing, Exact Target was a good chance for me personally to kind of step aside and take take a deep breath and and figure out what was next on on my path. And what was important to me was I wanted to coach and mentor entrepreneurs. I wanted to leverage the experience I'd gained and the network I'd built. And then I wanted to do something that, if successful, would make a big impact in Indianapolis. And, and you know, this community has embraced me and our company in such a profound way. Anything I can do to give back is, is high on my priority list. And I also wanted to do something different. You know, I wanted to do something that was hard and challenging where I could learn new skills. And, and that's really where the Venture Studio, you know, was such a perfect fit for me. My partners, uh, Christian, Eric, and Mike, we've been friends. We've done a lot of coaching and mentoring and co-investing. We've helped start SaaS companies with talented entrepreneurs, more like a hobby, kind of more nights and weekends. And we, when we got together and said, boy, what if we just did this full time? What if we built a, a company that started companies? We built a platform that served entrepreneurs extraordinarily well and was really tuned to starting new SaaS and cloud companies that would be something we'd be really passionate about. So those were some of the kind of formative thoughts that gave us the conviction that there was potential here. We could pioneer a new model and build a studio and a fund at the same time and and hopefully give entrepreneurs a chance to build breakout companies with a higher probability of success than they, they would have if they're just going kind of going alone. Yeah. And uh, the thesis at High Alpha, are you sticking to sort of your roots with a B2B SaaS focus? We really are. So we're B2B SaaS focused. And this idea of one part startup studio, one part venture fund, we think is what, what brings kind of the unique positioning to bear. So for a relatively small fund, we have 35 people on the team. You know, we have three data scientists and four engineers and four, five, six product designers, and then every function one would need to launch and scale a SaaS company, we've built. So marketing, HR and talent, finance, et cetera, et cetera. So we're 35, 40 people strong and very good at identifying new opportunities and companies to start. But also because we're, we have the empathy and we have the startup motion going, we think we're really differentiated as an investor as well. And finding ways to bring synergy across these two models has been really very fun and energizing. Awesome, awesome. So to start off on, on the venture studio side of High Alpha, for the listener's benefit, can you give us an overview of what the Venture Studio model is? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So the startup studio is oriented around starting new companies and our investors, Emergence Capital and Foundry Group, we feel like we have absolute dream team of investors. We've had a Gordon Ritter and Santi from Emergence have been investors in both studios, Studio One and Two. And then Foundry came on board for Studio Two and we've got Brad Feld and then Lindell, who are just you know wonderful mentors and guides and are very passionate about the venture studio model. So so those are our two investors on the studio side. And our orientation is start new breakout cloud companies. And we've signed up to start four to five new cloud companies per year over about a three or four year run. And we're matchmaking. We're looking for new fresh ideas pairing them with entrepreneurs and co-founders that we believe in and we think can grow and scale these companies. 
and kind of putting those pieces together. The way we do it, I think your listeners might find interesting, Nick. So we, we're always searching for ideas, and the ideas tend to come from four different sources. Our own ideas, just opportunities we see in the market. Uh, second would be entrepreneurs that approach us with an idea or a prototype that they want our guidance and help in launching the company with them. Three would be venture leads. So our, our venture partners, Merchants and Foundry, and then others throughout our network will often bring us ideas where maybe they see an emerging trend or opportunity, but they haven't found a company that they want to back. And then four, and this is perhaps the most unexpected, has been corporate innovation, big co's that are themselves going through digital transformation, right. see disruptive opportunities within their industry, but they're not they're not oriented or engineered towards starting and scaling SaaS companies. And they'll come to us and look for help in vetting ideas, taking a couple of ideas we think we have merit, and then ultimately co-founding companies with them. So so those are kind of the four idea sources where we have a corporate innovation and business design team that's vetting and researching and prioritizing ideas. And then we take our four or five top ideas and we run them through what we call Sprint Week. And Sprint Week happens on a quarterly basis. And that really becomes the forcing function for us to get conviction around which businesses we, we want to start. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So many of the venture studios that, that I've interacted with here in Chicago and a couple in New York, primarily most of those folks are partnering with, with entrepreneurs that have a great idea but maybe they're not the developer. Maybe they're not the engineer. They can't code it. Or maybe they are an engineer and they're a developer so they can build it, but they don't know how to commercialize it, right? And so the, the studio is kind of wearing one of those hats. They're coming in as a true co-founder, either building the product or helping you know, go to market with the product. But in this, this latter example you gave with, with the corporates, are you guys assembling the team itself, the sort of a tiger team to to work on this product, build it out, and and take it to market? We are, you know, arm in arm with that corporate partner, but we will run the idea through Sprint Week. And then if we, at the end of the week, both have conviction around starting the company, we start it together and we click in, you know, and our, our model is, is a full service model. So we'll help recruit co-founders and build the co-founding team. Ideally, we've identified those co-founders early in the process and they've helped us shape the idea. And then when we hit go, we'll drop in formation capital. We co-locate. So the businesses start you know, within our building. And then we provide all the back office support. So we're providing payroll and medical benefits. We try to make it as easy as possible for the entrepreneurs to get started and really focus on building a product that hits the mark and has product market fit. So these, these kind of early entrepreneurial teams, we really work with them arm in arm to, to find the MVP build that first version of the product, go find early customers and, and get off the ground running and try to help them just focus on building an awesome team themselves and finding early customers and making sure the product hits the mark. Often we'll kind of build the first prototype of the product mm-hmm. and then we'll build engineering capacity right into the team and then they take it they take it from there. Got it. Which of the four different types or categories have you found you know, maybe increasing focus on over time? You know, you've been doing the studio model for, I think, a few years now, and you've done multiple funds. So, you know, which of those four branches, if any, seems to be most in focus for High Alpha? Yeah, that's a great question, Nick. I would say to date, our ideas that have turned into companies have been fairly balanced across the four branches. I would say the one where we've put the most new energy in is on the corporate innovation side. So we We were fortunate to recruit a dynamite leader, Elliot Parker, joined us a year ago, moved here from Boston. Elliot had been working with with Clay Christensen at a consulting firm called InnoSight and really brought a lot of his thinking to High Alpha around uh, jobs to be done methodology and, and kind of all the early work Clay had done around Innovator's Dilemma and all the amazing uh, books and, and teaching that he's provided us with. So Elliot's built a, a business design team where we now run the same business vetting and evaluation process across all four branches. So whether it's a corporate innovation idea or an entrepreneur-led idea or one of our own ideas, we run it through the same methodology. So it's been really fun. These sprint weeks have great diversity and flavor to them. And often we have corporate innovation partners that are part of that sprint week experience. So I'd say that's the one that we're getting a tremendous amount of interest in that, you know, big co's are they're looking for for new ways to innovate, and they 
have gone heavy on R&D, they've leaned heavy on M&A, but this whole idea of new co-creation and, and starting new ventures is a muscle that most big companies haven't built. And they're very fearful of others disrupting them and they need to really think differently. And we're a very good partner in that we're, we're company builders first, consultants second. So when we engage with them, it's the deliverable is whether we start a new company together. It's not a research report or set of recommendations. Through the process, we're infusing entrepreneurial thinking we're helping them build more of a culture of innovation, but the scorecard is have we started a company together. So we think it's a fresh approach and we're getting a lot of interest from big co's that want to take us up on the exploration of starting companies together. Got it. Got it. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And we've, I think so far we've teased out a lot of the things that make the studio model unique, but if you were to highlight the key differences between a studio-based venture fund model and a traditional venture fund, you know, what would those key areas of difference be? Yeah, I think, I think the largest area of difference is that we're operators first, investors second, you know, that we have, we bring lots of entrepreneurial empathy because we've built and scaled SaaS and cloud companies ourselves, and then we're still doing it. You know, we're still in the process of doing it. And there's a lot of synergy that can be built between the studio and, and, and the fund. And for us, what we're really unlocking is kind of learning and growing opportunities. So we're very kind of education and event oriented. We, we hold four uh, quarterly flight schools. We have a CEO offsite. We have a monthly speaker series. So we're kind of building chemistry and synergy across our studio founders and our capital CEOs and founders and finding ways for them to learn from one another. You know, and I think that's the magic that we're working hard to unlock is that combination. And it, what's been really fun is to be kind of an early pioneer and even defining what is a venture studio? What, what's a combination of a fund and studio look like? Mm -hmm. We just formed a group called Venture Studio Collective to organize early venture studios so we can learn from one another. So we've, we're working with uh, Human Ventures in New York, and we do a lot of work with Pioneer Square Labs out of Seattle. We're doing a lot of work with Techstars as they're getting their new studio off the ground. And, and there's such a big opportunity, and it's such a new flavor of how to start companies and make investments that everyone's very open and learning from one another on this journey. So we're we're still in the early days of, of bringing this model to life, but we we like the early results that we're seeing. You mentioned that there's synergies between the the studio and the venture fund model. Why did you decide to do both at High Alpha? We were company builders first, so the studio really fits our ethos and what we think we're really good at and really leverages our background. The fund is a wonderful compliment, you know, so we can help these young companies get capitalized properly, which is a huge advantage. And you know this too, Nick, but in markets like, you know, Indianapolis in particular, you know, capital sources are thin and many entrepreneurs spend way too much time and, and distraction trying to raise capital. And we found by having the fund, when a company has early signals of success and product market fit, we can make that funding round go a whole lot faster because we're able to write a check and be a part of it and also leverage all the wonderful investor relationships we have around the country. So that's a huge benefit. And then I'd say the second benefit is our ability to invest in companies outside our studio keeps us sharp and, and really ensures that we don't get too insular into what is happening in indie or what maybe worked for us in the past but isn't relevant today. So that's been fantastic, getting a chance to support amazing entrepreneurs outside of our geography that are perhaps a little further along. So many of our investor investments tend to be kind of series A plus, and we're able to complement the kind of early, you know, seed and studio work we're doing with these series A companies that are starting to scale and, and are building a network where these entrepreneurs can learn from one another in a pretty profound way. Scott, which types of partners or, or founders are a really strong fit for the studio model? You know, it's interesting. I think there's a common belief that first-time founders fit well into a studio, and that's that's absolutely the case because there's so there's just kind of so much to learn around, you know, company formation and building an MVP, early customer development, how to raise capital, just everything that goes into getting a new company off the ground. You know, our mission is to accelerate learning and help those kind of first-time CEOs scale quickly. So yeah. a persona that we're having a lot of success with is very strong leader that has been a part of a high growth SaaS company. Perhaps they've led development in engineering or they've led go to market, but this is their first kind of foray into being a CEO. So that that's a very good persona for us. 
but we're also having a lot of success with experienced CEOs. So Scott Burns, who led Gov Delivery up in St. Paul, is now leading one of our companies structural. Uh, Scott McCorkle, uh, my former kind of partner in crime, who is CTO and later president of Exact Target, and actually took over for me when I left Salesforce. He was CEO of the Salesforce Marketing Cloud. We started a company together called MetaCX, and Scott was really eager to leverage the expertise and the breadth of services that we could provide at High Alpha. So those are a couple of good examples where super experienced CEOs that would have no difficulty raising capital and kind of starting a company from scratch still saw enough benefit to be, want to be a part of the High Alpha family and leverage the breadth of services and, and the breadth of team members that we've assembled. So those are some good examples, and I think we're we're still tuning and learning, you know, what that ideal co-founder or CEO profile looks like. But we're, you know, looking for passionate, you know, entrepreneurs and CEOs that care about solving the problem we're working on. I'd say that's been another big learning for us, Nick, is, you know, you can't really drop a leader into a business if they don't have really, really deep passion around solving the problem or the category of software that's being built. So the earlier we can work on an idea with an entrepreneur and a co-founder, the better. Got it. And you've spoken about a lot of the sort of hallmarks of the high alpha program and what makes you guys special. If I were to reframe that slightly, you know, how do you think about how you differentiate your studio model from the other studios out there in the country? Um, you mentioned that you know you're creating this collective of studios so that you can share ideas and and promote the model in general but uh, you know how do you think about differentiation of of high alpha versus some of these other entities yeah no absolutely and it, it's it is such a big market opportunity that you know we really don't worry about competition at this stage it's it's very very collaborative but if i would think about our differentiation or how we how we perhaps position ourselves it's operator first We've started and scaled SaaS companies, I think, at the at the highest order, or let's say, you know, kind of the peaks of the industry. And our experience and network and relationships we can bring are substantial. The Midwest is a big orientation for us, so our venture investments are everywhere. But the companies we're starting are largely Midwest centric, and and we have a talent advantage here in Indy with the university relationships we have, and then you know the digital marketing hub that's been built here. Those are some real strong suits. I think we're we're backed by the best in the industry. You know, having a Gordon and Santi from Emergence and Brad and Lindell from Foundry and amazing LPs on the fun side. We feel like we've got every chance for success and we've aligned ourselves with really the best minds in the industry that are helping us become great investors and helping us learn and grow as we kind of pioneer this new venture studio model. And then I think just humility. You know, we're we're still very down-to-earth people. We're focused on, you know, being entrepreneur first, you know, and, and coaching and mentoring and helping entrepreneurs any way we can and rolling up our sleeves every day. We're hardworking. We're a long way from being able to claim success, you know, so we're, we're hungry, we're learning, we're, we're adapting, we're doing everything we can to support entrepreneurs in a, in a really innovative and unique way. You know, hopefully five, 10, 15 years from now, we can look back and feel like we really built some breakout companies and we're a set of resources that really helped entrepreneurs kind of reach their full, full potential. Scott, what would you say to the critics of the studio model that say studios take too much equity? Yeah, it's a good question, Nick. I think that I think that is a common challenge, and you know, I think I think to answer that question, you have to really talk to the entrepreneurs that we're building companies with. You know, for them to give us a scorecard on whether the equity split was fair, and they they felt you know that we provided an amazing amount of value, and that they they would go do it again. And I think you know, I think if you ask those entrepreneurs, they say I'd, I'd do it again, kind of all day long. And that's and that's where we've got to kind of earn our stripes. But there are a lot of different ways to start a company. And I think every entrepreneur and co-founder has to pick kind of their best path with the services that we provide. You know, we are taking a meaningful equity position at, at the time of formation, but we feel that we deliver we deliver outsized value. Not only the formation capital we put in, the services we wrap around the entrepreneurs, the kind of the network that we provide, the ongoing learning that we provide, and the ongoing guidance that we're a great business partner. And, and this only works if co-founders have meaningful equity and they're incredibly passionate and driven to build a big, meaningful company and that they have good financial outcomes. So we work hard to try to really optimize that, that balance and make sure that if we're successful 
everybody has big upside and everybody feels well rewarded for the time and effort they put into building the company. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Your startup is going to change the world and the right corporate card will get you there even faster. The Brex corporate card for startups offers 10 to 20 times higher limits than traditional corporate cards, automated expense tools, and huge rewards like four times points back on travel, three times back on restaurants, and two times back on recurring SaaS spend. And all with no personal guarantee. Sign up at brex.com and get waived card fees for life with the code TFR. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Assure. For over three years, Newstack has been raising capital on a deal-by-deal basis, allowing individual investors to select each startup investment. Assure is the company behind the scenes that powers this process. When we have 10, 20, or 30 angels investing in a startup, we can't put all those folks directly on the startup's cap table. So those investors are rolled into a special purpose vehicle that occupies just one line item on the cap table. And Assure handles all ongoing fees, finances, and K-1s for us. We pay a one-time upfront fee and avoid all the required yearly admin filings and bills. If you run an angel group or you would like your LPs to invest in deal-by-deal sidecars, go to assure.co slash TFR for 20% off your first SPV. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Scott, you you talked earlier about your sprint week at High Alpha, and I came across some some content on your site that said that, you know, during the sprint week process you focus on minimally viable business, an MVP right, right. versus an MVP, which I love. I've actually talked on the show many times about more of a, a minimum viable concept as opposed to a product and testing that out. But can you talk more about the MVB and then also kind of detail out what's going on in this sprint week? I'd be happy to. So, so sprint weeks, we tend to run four to six ideas through sprint week. We run them quarterly. They tend to include 60 to 70 people. And it's a mix of every high alpha team member participates, Nick, but then we bring a lot of outside experts in that might be a subject matter expert on an idea that we're exploring or potential co-founder that wants to work with us in, in one form or another. And it becomes like an amazing trial run of the entrepreneur getting to know us, high alpha getting to know the entrepreneur and seeing if we can shape an idea in a direction that we both have conviction around. We try to pack months worth of work into three or four days. And it's very energizing and exhausting, but it's very, very intense. And we'll have done a lot of pre-work on the idea. We'll assemble these teams that tend to be 8, 10, 12 people, mix of high alpha and kind of outside guests. And then we go super deep uh, using our Sprint Week methodology uh, kind of over the course of that week. I would say day one is about getting clarity on the problem that we're solving. Got it. Day two tends to be designing solutions, and then day three is really designing the business. And then day four, we present to one another and then ultimately pick one, two, or three of the new businesses that we want to push forward to the next stage and and really start. But the idea is we clear our schedules. We have found that the power of uninterrupted time is, is really substantial. So you're not allowed to schedule any meetings phone calls, anything non-sprint week oriented. You've got a clear schedule and we go super deep in really getting deep into understanding, is this a problem we're solving? We do a lot of customer validation work and we really design the business. So a minimal viable business, we have to be solving meaningful product. We have to believe we can, we can build a software solution that is SaaS and cloud oriented. We can pick a wedge where we can, we can add value immediately, but then know that we can build on that over the course of time. And then we have to look for how can we build unique competitive advantage? What, what about this business? What about a co-founder we might start it with or the high alpha resources give us a unique advantage in the market? Is it a unique business model? Is it a unique partnership we can bring to the table? Is it the talent we can assemble? Is it our customer network that can get us off to a quick start? Is it the corporate innovation partner that can build the product with us and perhaps even be an equity uh, investor early, early? 
So all those kind of pieces go into the mix to hopefully build that minimal viable business and, and one that we have conviction that's worth starting. And, and what's really interesting, you know this so well, Nick, is you know, there are hundreds of reasons why to not start a business. We can't build the tech. There's too much competition, you know, on and on and on. So Sprint yep. Week becomes a forcing function that literally forces us to start new businesses. And you're not able to get to the end of Sprint Week and say this idea won't work. You have to come up with the best version of the idea, the best version of of the concept that you want to put forward that we can believe we really can believe and get conviction it could be a viable business. How many of these different teams are are running in parallel during a sprint week? Yeah, so the most we've run is six, the fewest is four. Wow. And and the artifact that gets created at the end of the week is also fascinating. We build brands, we build a digital presence, we've identified the brand for the business. We do high fidelity product prototypes. So we've really, we built what that MVP looks like and we've done a tremendous amount of customer validation. If we're really successful, we even have early customer commits to be a part of our alpha program. We've identified potential co-founders. We built the the hiring plan. We built the finance uh, plan. We've identified, you know, early partnerships that'll give us competitive edge. And we were able to do all that very, very efficiently. And the fact that we're so time constrained, it really forces you to be really decisive, to take imperfect information and make those early decisions that are important and going fast. Is there a competition aspect between the teams? I mean, at the at the end of the week, is it sort of selection process on which of these concepts are going to be further developed? Yes, highly competitive. <laughs> and uh, and all all four all four partners we we run our own teams we compete against one another you know at the end we we put team leader aside we make the best decisions for high alpha and what business we think truly has the most potential but during the week and and presentation day it's highly competitive we all want to win and we're searching for the best version of the idea and the some of the kind of you know magical discoveries or unique approaches to the business we think that are going to give us an edge. And are there customer touch points during that sprint week as well? Tons. We're doing constant customer validation in advance, but also throughout the week of bringing potential customers in, doing a lot of video conferencing, a lot of phone calls, and expanding the network to to the greatest of our ability to really get conviction that this is a customer-tested idea and hopefully get early customers that want to be a part of the journey with us. I remember very early in my career going through something called quality function deployment, which... uh, it sounds like your sprint week is is a much uh, more evolved and much better version of that. But great to get smart folks, you know, all together, clearing their schedule, deep diving on a problem, having these touch points with customers to get that iterative feedback and design a solution that that really compels. Love it. It's a, it sounds like a great program. Thank you. No, it's very invigorating. It's hard. It's challenging. But you come out at the end of the week feeling really energized and satisfied with the work that's been done. And it's been really fun to bring our corporate partners along with us on this journey. You know, we're bringing executives of very large companies into startup mode, you know, and really getting their hands dirty, you know, and and it's been really fun to see, not uncommon that we have executives of very large companies that are, you know, working with us until 10, 11, 12 at night, you know, digging in, you know, doing their own research, jumping in, doing their own validation. It's kind of all hands on deck. And it's actually, it's kind of a great equalizer too, that we we really have everyone kind of check their job title at the door when you come into Sprint Week. So if you're an EA at High Alpha or Senior VP of Innovation for a large corporate, you know, everybody jumps in, rolls up their sleeves and has a big role on the Sprint Week team. Love it. So Scott, I wanted to circle back and touch on the partnership program again. So I, I noticed that you don't just work with tech corporations, but you also partner with universities and uh, academic programs. Can you talk a bit about this structure and, and the benefits of, of partnership for the, the founders and, and the startups that are being developed you know, within the studio? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So you know, we are motivated to build as many meaningful partnerships as we can. So we, we do. We have strong university relationships for talent and idea pipeline. We work with many of the big SaaS and cloud providers also, you know, working to understand where do they have gaps in their platform, where might they see an opportunity for innovation, and where can we integrate into their platforms to deliver more value back to them, you know, and and amplify the ecosystem. So that's a a partner uh, motion that's really important to us. 
And then, and then big corporates that are just going through this digital transformation and see us as a potential partner in their digital first and non-digital first companies. And we're really evaluating, are they operating in a category that we think we can produce winning businesses? Is there really an opportunity for innovation? And do they have the right mindset around success being whether we start a company or not? So, you know, partnerships and building those relationships are really paramount to what we do. Have you ever worked with uh, really young folks coming out of university? Or most oh, ab- absolutely. Absolutely. Great. Great. What, what did we miss on the Venture Studio model at, at High Alpha that, that we didn't touch on that we, that we should? I think, I think we covered a lot of ground, Nick. I think what I would maybe just kind of say in conclusion is the Venture Studio model holds amazing promise. And, you know, and I think there will be separation. I think there'll be a lot of small venture studios, and I think there'll be a few that break out and have more size and scale. That's why we've been so excited to put this venture studio collected together to really get, you know, a handful of these kind of early pioneers that are well-resourced together, you know, to kind of learn from one another. So there's still a lot to figure out, but I do think this is going to be a form of venture investment and new co-creation that uh, is quite successful for years to come and has a lot of potential. Scott, if we could cover any topic here on the program, what topic do you think we should address and who would you like to hear speak about it? I think what's fascinating are these product-led growth stories. And I'd say that's the area we've been studying and leaning in the most are looking at the new age of SaaS companies that are going public and how they built their companies. Zoom is an amazing example. Like we have really, really enjoyed being a Zoom customer and also having kind of an inside look at how Zoom has built their business through our relationship with Emergence and now Eric and the leadership team at Zoom. And I think following and studying the Zoom story and then others like it, I think are the best indicator for where SaaS and cloud is going in the future. And it start, And what I love so much about Zoom, Eric is all about delivering happiness to the customer and building a better product experience and also delivering happiness to his team. And that's really all that matters is building an environment where you're attracting incredible people that love the company. And as a result, they love serving their customers and building a product that is just so good. It's just so authentically good that users love it. They get value out of it. And then it spreads virally and and the growth kind of takes care of itself. Like those are the businesses we need to hold up on a pedestal. And I think Eric's the type of leader who is customer first and, and team member first, you know, that I think are setting the right trend and are setting the right roadmap for the kind of companies that we want to build. Scott, what investor has influenced you most? I think it's it's the two we have seated at our table, you know, High Alpha, Brad Feld, and then Gordon Ritter. Those are the two that are shaping our thinking and we're learning from the most. And then I was so fortunate to have an extraordinary group of investors on our journey at Exact Target. We had Insight Ventures, uh, Scott Maxwell and Nikitas led our Series A. Yep. I've learned a lot from Scott as he's moved on to OpenView and has built an amazing practice at OpenView and OpenView Labs, where they're not only growth and expansion investors, but they're a value-add model. You know, they're a good parallel to us where they're adding a lot of services and, and a lot of support to these entrepreneurs. They tend to be more growth stage than startup stage. So I've learned so much from Scott. And then uh, Battery, TCV, and Scale were other investors that were big influences of mine and, and continue to help me to this day. And I, and I think that's an important lesson that, you know, no matter what level of success or traction you've had, it's super important that you're still growing and that you have your mentors. And that's what's been so fun for me on this journey of starting a venture studio and learning the world of of venture capital is I have so much more to learn and that's what's stretching me. And I'm trying to be as thoughtful as I can also to make sure that I have mentors that I can lean on, ask for advice, get constructive feedback from, and continue to learn and stretch myself. And it, it's really funny as you as you kind of move from entrepreneur to investor, it's common that you go from you know being the mentee to being the mentor. But I think it's really important that you continue to develop yourself and you never stop learning. And, yeah. and you find your own network of mentors that can stretch you in new directions. And I, I try to be really thoughtful about that. You know, in light of that, if a new founder showed up, you know, that is interested in raising capital for their business, is there one piece of advice? Um, I'm sure there's a lot of advice, but is there, there one thing that, that you would communicate to them or advise them on, uh, you know, new entrepreneurs that are embarking on 
their venture building process? Relative to how to go about raising venture capital? Well, it could be, you know, starting a new business and planning to raise some capital around it. So it could be on the capital side or it could be on the building side. You know, I think on the build on the building side, I think it's all about picking the right problem to solve and solving a problem that people really care about is worth solving. And knowing that you have unique capabilities to understand the market and bring a solution to the market that's differentiated. You know, that's always the starting point for we have for starting a company. And then I think it's always about surrounding yourself with great people and select co-founders that are going to make you better and challenge you and compliment you. And then those early investors are super important also to make sure that you're just surrounding yourself with people that have a similar set of values, similar vision for where you want to take the company, and they're just going to make you better, and they're going to challenge you in all the right ways. If I look back on our ET journey, for me, you know, how did I grow as an individual? How did I grow as a professional, as a leader? It was all about the people I was able to attract to the business and surround myself with. So I think that is, that's like priority one, two, and three, is, is building the right team and surrounding yourself with the right people that are committed to you, are committed to what you're building, and are going to help you get better. Love it. And finally, Scott, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you? That's a great question. I would say probably LinkedIn. I'm, I pay attention to, to LinkedIn invites and messages, and I'd say that's a, that's a good place to start. And I try to be as accessible and helpful as I can to, to all entrepreneurs or, or investors. Well, Scott, you are truly one of the great people in all of startups and all of venture. Uh, you're a great ambassador for the, for the Midwest, and we look forward to to just great things, watching you know high alpha develop and uh, cultivating great companies. So thanks so much for spending the time with us today. Really I really enjoyed it, Nick. Thank you. Thanks for all that you're doing and I uh, appreciate you having me on the program. That will wrap up today's episode. Thanks for joining us here on the show. And if you'd like to get involved further, you can join our investment group for free on AngelList. Head over to angel.co and search for New Stack Ventures. There you can back the syndicate to see our deal flow, see how we choose startups to invest in, and read our thesis on investment in each startup we choose. As always, show notes and links for the interview are at fullratchet.net. And until next time, remember to overprepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for joining us.